I need to confess something to you. You may not be prepared, but oh well. I was in the second grade. So uh, wherever my kids are, cover your ears. They're not paying attention anyway. It's okay. I was in the second grade. I was in a little Adventist school uh, down in La Paz, Bolivia, where, where I was born. And um, my family lived next door to the school. In Bolivia, education is a little bit different. Uh, you can go to school in the morning or the afternoon. It's, it's not all day. And it was my job to go to school in the afternoon. So my friends and I would sometimes uh, uh, get together earlier before school and we would, uh, you know, mess around before we went to, 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 to class. Uh, and because it was a third world country, my parents kind of just let us out the house and we were supposed to get to school on our own and, and come back on our own. It's not something we would do here, but, but there I would and I had a lot more freedom. I was just in the second grade, but I had a lot more freedom. And one of the things that my friends and I would like to do is, uh, the, the school was in the city, is we would go past the school and we would go down the street to where the stores were. Peruse through the supermarkets. Uh, there was a few uh, fast food shops. And then uh, down on the street corner, just a couple blocks from the school, was a newsstand. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those. They're not usually here because we never walk. We, we just drive. But in places where people walk, they have these things called newsstands, like, uh, like a little kiosk. Here they only have them in the mall. But there would be an open air on the corner, a little kiosk where they would sell magazines, newspapers. You ever seen one? Yes? Or, or at least on TV? Okay, thank you. Okay. Um, so they, they had one of those on the street corner. They would sell magazines, uh, newspapers. And my friends and I would go there because, and this is the confession part, um, there was one person working in the, in the booth. There's magazines and newspapers and everything. But in the lower rungs, out in front, near the lower rungs, were comic books. Comic books. Um, and uh, my friends and I love comics. We were into things you would never know, like Kaliman. Everybody heard of Kaliman? Yeah? Somebody? Somebody out there knows what Kaliman is. Okay, okay. Don't admit it. Just nod knowingly like, or, or disapprovingly. It doesn't matter. Uh, so there were these comic books that would be in the lower rungs, all right? And my, my friends and I, we would go there. And if you have children in the audience, cover their ears too. Uh, but my friends and I would go there. And right next to this newsstand was a tiny little patch of dirt where once a tree stood. The tree was gone. It had died. And it was a little patch of dirt in the sidewalk. And my friends and I would uh, take our marbles. Anybody remember marbles? Yeah, okay. And, you know, you play, you throw them and you try to hit them. And my friends and I would pretend to play marbles. You know what's, you know what's coming. We, we would pretend to play marbles in that little piece of, of dirt there. And while we were playing, playing marbles, shooting the marbles, one of us would just get closer and closer to the newsstand. We had no money, mind you. And so we would just get a, get a comic book. And then, oh, look, game's over. And stick it in our book bag and, you know, disappear, go back to school. And during school, we'd be like, check it out. Well, needless to say, it was wrong. Obviously, if you're listening, I see some young people, it was wrong. And I knew that. And I knew that it was wrong. But the lure of it, of this brand new Kalimak, Kalimak was so, but we couldn't help ourselves. So we would go, my friends and I. And one particular day, my friends and I were there. One of us was, you know, the wingman. You, you, you create the distraction, right? 
Okay, you guys have never done anything like that. I, I shouldn't expect you guys to know what I'm talking about. Um, one of us would create the distraction, and while the distract was going, another, the accomplice, would, you know, take the, take. And so there we were, uh, playing with marbles in this little spot of sand, when suddenly, you know, we were, we were in the moment, and just then, the man jumped out from the kiosk, and, um, and he grabbed my bookcase because you know we were going to school he grabbed my bookcase so I had a hand on my bookcase and he had a, my friend of course disappeared and it was just me and I was like no because if you don't know anything about going to school in another country uh, book bags are like your life's possession mine was uh, kind of like the one I carry now a little the little attache case, a little flip over like this with a little handle. Ever seen one of those? A little handle. Didn't have the straps, so it wasn't a purse. It was just a handle. And, um, and I had a hand, and he had it. And, he's like, and he said to me, I caught you now. I got you. And I was like, no. And I was looking around for anyone to help me. Second grade, no one. My friends had disappeared. So it was just me and him. And I had this moment where I, I, I could hang on to this thing or let it go. But I knew that if I let this thing go, I would arrive home without my book bag. And as my father always warned me, there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> Y'all heard that one? And, and he said, I got you now. And before he could grab me, I, I quickly let go. Let go. And there he stood and he says, I got you now. He didn't know my name. He didn't know us, but he had my book bag. And I, I, I was caught in the act. I went uh, back to school. I snuck into school. My teachers didn't ask about the book. But I knew that I had been caught and that eventually what I had been doing was going to be found out. And I was so scared. I was so scared. Mind you, I have done uh, worse things in my life. But, but I was so scared because for my father, the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth was, was literal. It was literal. There was going to be lots of weeping and lots of gnashing, his gnashing and my weeping. And, um, and I expected but I did not want to face up to the consequences. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, oh, how did I get here? I, why did I do this? You're with me? Anybody ever been in a situation where you're like, was it worth it? No, obviously not after I got caught. But, but how did I later get this far? But now I have to face the consequences of my, of my actions. So I had these few hours in the afternoon while I was at school, and I'll, I could just, it was a nightmare for me. I knew I couldn't go home without that bag, for my mom was going to ask me, and what was I going to do? Lie some more? And I would have to face up. I would have to go back to the place to get my book back. I would have to face up to my crimes and do the time, because if you commit the crime, you must do the time, right? The only way that justice is served is if you commit the crime, you have to do the time. And I knew, and I was in second grade, and I was so deathly afraid of the consequences. How embarrassing. How embarrassing. Everyone was going to find out. Because I, I know my parents. They were going to let this go quietly. They were going to find out all my accomplices. They were going to drag me down to the school. They were going to parade me in front of everybody, and, and I was going to have it. I was so afraid, and I felt the shame, and I, and, and, and I just suffered. And I just suffered. And I tried to come up with a way to get out of it. I tried to come up with some excuse. The dog ate it, obviously. No, I tried to come up with something. I wasn't that creative back then. I've gotten more creative as I've gotten older. But back then, I wasn't that creative, and, and I couldn't think of a way to get out of it. And so you can imagine what happened to me. And when I think back on it, 
There's so many, so many uh, uh, reasons why I shouldn't have been in that situation. You know, I was, a, I was a pastor's kid, so you can imagine the embarrassment from my own family. And my parents taught me right, just like probably your parents taught you, but I just, I ended up there. I ended up there. I, I, that's not where I was supposed to be. That's not, I was a good student to boot, but, but I ended up in this situation, and I felt so ashamed and so embarrassed. But, but, but what a second grader might feel like getting caught, stealing, or lying, or cheating, is nothing, nothing compared to the feeling that this young woman felt when she was caught in the act. You know the story. I, I want you to go there with me. It's, it's a familiar one. It's found in the book of John. It's in chapter 8. You'll recognize it right away. But, but for a moment, I just want you to, to go there and let's, let's read and... and and sit in for a minute in the Word of God. The Bible tells us in the book of John, chapter 8, that beginning with verse 1, that Jesus had gone to the Mount of Olives. Before we get into the familiar part of the story, I just want you to understand uh, the main character here. It's Jesus. Jesus is uh, in the Mount of Olives. And if you're unfamiliar with the New Testament, Jesus spends a lot of time in this place called the Mount of Olives. And, and, and just, just so we're on the same page, what Jesus was doing in the Mount of Olives is that he was meditating, reflecting, and praying. See, by the time we encounter Jesus at this story, Jesus has been in public ministry. That means he's been preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. And, and before he went public with his ministry, he was already in this habit. But especially after he went public with his ministry, Jesus dug deep in the well of reflection, prayer, and meditation. He spent time in the Mount of Olives. You'll see that reference all over the New Testament. And there's a reason for that. Because Jesus would go to this place, his, his favorite place, to talk with his Father. He would go there to spend time with God the Father. And he would pour out his heart and receive blessings from the Father. He would go there to connect to the Father. Because if you read the book of John at all, you would understand that Jesus' mission on earth was to represent the Father. So he would go there to recharge and energize and be clear. And so after Jesus spends some time in the Mount of Olives, the Bible tells us that he comes from, back from there. And at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. Again, familiar part of the story is coming, but just so we're clear, Jesus goes to church. This is not on Saturday. It's happening during the week. And what we have here is Jesus going to church during the week because he, for them, a church wasn't just a weekend thing or, or a Saturday morning thing. A church was life. Their social calendar, their religious calendar, it was all one. And they spent time in the temple courts. And it was not uncommon for Jesus to spend his time in the temple courts leading out a Bible study. He would go there. And what's happening here is probably uh, early part of the day. And Jesus goes, as is his custom, to the temple courts. And there were people there. And the Bible tells us he sat down to teach them. So Jesus meets with God, spends time with God. And after being infused by the essence and the presence of God, he goes back to do what he's sent to do, to reveal the character of God. So there he is at church in the temple courts. They probably had a courtyard of sorts, not inside the sanctuary itself, but in the courtyard. And there he's teaching the Bible. The Old Testament scriptures that they had, he begins to teach people and, 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 and represent the character of God. And it is there, 
that the familiar part of the story begins. You remember this part. The Bible tells us, chapter 8, verse 3, that there the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and in the law of Moses it is commanded that we should stone such women. Now, what do you have to say? You remember that part, right? You probably heard this story or, or have... It's, it's been referenced to you. But I want you to picture for just a moment. There is Jesus having spent time with God and now in the temple courts preaching, teaching, sharing the character of God. And the Pharisees bring in a woman caught in the act. The Bible makes a reference here and, and repeats it twice. And in particular, the second time uh, that the Pharisees are, are describing... They make it a point to say it, uh, that uh, they, they, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, in the act of adultery, which means <clears throat> that the woman, this isn't just a rumor. This isn't like uh, we've heard and uh, we should talk about this lady. No, they bring her, possibly dragged her. Theologians believe that maybe they had set a trap for her, uh, somehow lured her into that situation, and she got caught in the act, handing the cookie jars, they say. Uh, and, and then they, in that moment, in the morning, they drag her from where she was caught to this very public place. And, in a public scenario. And the Bible tells us that they stood her before the group and they said to Jesus, this is her sin. She's caught in adultery. The law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you have to say? Now, obviously, uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of things going on here. Obviously, there, there, there are multiple uh, scenarios that are being played out here. Uh, the, the author of the book goes on to tell us that these Pharisees, they were trying to trap Jesus. So let, let's deal with that for just a second. So <clears throat> theologians believe that essentially the, the teachers of the law, which would have been uh, like the pastors or conference evangelists of our day, uh, don't like Jesus. That's clear. They want to eliminate him and they want to find just cause for getting rid of him. So they set up this trap. Tradition has it that they quite possibly got, uh, you know, laid out bait for this poor woman. But nevertheless, she's guilty, and they bring her, caught in the act. And they, 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 instead of bringing her to the authorities and to the rightful places, they bring her before Jesus. And they say, okay, Jesus, here's the scenario. Here's the deal. What should we do? They figure that if Jesus says we should stone her, then they're going to blame him for pronouncing a, a sentence that only the Romans... In, current, uh, in their current climate can give. And therefore getting in trouble with the Romans. But if Jesus says, well, let's let her go, then uh, he would be in violation of the law of Moses and get in trouble with the Jews. So they think they got him. That's part of the scenario here. They're trying to trap Jesus. And as you'll know, you probably have heard the rest of the story, Jesus responds to that. But for a moment, for just a moment, ignore them. For just a moment, let's think about the woman. Yes, that whole, let's trap Jesus and let's, let's get Jesus, that's at play. But for just a moment, let's think about the woman. Can you imagine being caught in the act in your worst moment? In your most shameful moment? And then getting dragged down in front of church today and being put here on the stage? Can you imagine that? See, here's the deal. Like, whether she was trapped or not, she obviously made some poor choices. 
And I'm assuming here, but I, I'm figuring that when, when they rushed in on her and they caught her, there was a moment there where she began to think, oh no, this can't be happening. I'm sure that there was a moment where she thought to herself, what? How, how did I get here? And as she's being dragged into the center of town, as she's being dragged into the church, she thinks, what is going on? Because possibly she would be familiar with the law. She was a Jewish woman. She probably thought to herself, I should have known better. I, I, my parents didn't raise me this way. This isn't where I'm supposed to be. This isn't what is supposed to happen to my life. But here she is. She's in this moment where not only is she caught, but now she's going to be shamed very publicly in front of the church and in front of Jesus, no less. By the time we find Jesus, he isn't as infamous yet, but he is somewhat known as a person of purity and religious authority. That's why the Pharisees bring her here. Can you imagine being unmasked publicly in the in front of Jesus? I mean, just think about it for just a second. What if someone in this room knew your deepest, darkest secret? What if someone in this room was watching when you did that thing you did this week you don't want nobody to know? And they caught you in the act. Videotaped you, recorded your internet searches, saw and heard what you did. And then they brought you up here in front of the church, this Bible study dragged you in here. Can you imagine that? See, on the one hand, we feel bad, we feel sorry, but on the other hand, she, uh, she did do it, right? Well, on the one hand, we might say, ooh, that would be terrible, we don't wish that for anyone, but on the other hand, hey, if you do the crime, you have to do the time. On the other hand, we could easily say, well, listen, it's her fault. Whether or not they laid out a trap, she still had a choice to make. This shame is, is bad. Nobody wants that. But hey, it's her fault. You know who's thinking that? She is. Because the moment you're finally caught, the moment you're finally caught, all that self-delusion, you know, kind of goes away. The moment that someone actually finally catches you, all the time you try to talk your way through uh, something bad that you've done and gave yourself an out, suddenly goes away because now there's no excuse. Somebody caught you. See, all those times when you do something, you go, well, I'm not going to do it again, right? Or those times you, you go down the road, you know you're not supposed to, but you're like, well, uh, maybe, maybe I'll learn something. Maybe this experience will make it better. I don't know. You try to think and talk your way through it, but the moment you're caught and someone knows your sin and knows what you did, all the self-delusion goes away because you can't get out of it. Someone already knows. And in this case, it's very public. This poor woman is poor because of her own decisions. She's feeling the shame and this guilt because of something that she did. She deserves what's coming to her. Theologians believe that she felt death was imminent. And that's the kind of person they drag, they drag in, front of, in front of Jesus. Bible tells us they bring her and they say, okay, Jesus, what do you say? The law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you have to say? And obviously there, the, the author says they were using this question to trap him. But Jesus bent down, you know the rest of the story, and he started to write on the ground with his finger. 
And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Let him be the first to cast a stone. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. You remember the story. You've probably heard it. You've probably imagined it in your head. Happening there in the temple courts, there's a little bit of patch of dirt there. And, and Jesus is teaching the Bible when suddenly interrupted by this scandal. And they press him and impress him. See, what they want, what they're asking for, is justice. This woman has been caught in the act. And, and, and the law, justice demands that she be killed. What do you have to say? We demand justice. Because anytime a scandal breaks out, somebody wants justice. That's the world that we live in. Anytime a scandal breaks out, who's responsible? Who's going to take the fall for this? We demand justice. Wrongs have been committed. Somebody has to pay. This happens on a larger scale and on a minor scale. Ever receive the wrong order at a restaurant or at the drive-thru? I'm just making a point here, but, but you'll hear me. Ever receive the wrong order at a restaurant or at the drive-thru? And suddenly you feel like justice, right? I want, so you park your car and you go back in and you said, I wanted extra large fries with this. See, it sounds silly, but that's the culture that you are a part of, we're a part of. We want justice. We want justice. Anytime something is wrong, isn't rightfully done, we demand justice. That's the culture that we live in. And that is the accusation that is being brought. Someone has done something wrong. This woman was caught in the act. We demand justice. And Jesus responds to the demands for justice by simply writing on the ground. You know, Jesus isn't recorded anywhere else as, as doing a whole lot of writing. He teaches a lot, but he doesn't do a whole lot of writing. This is probably the only time he actually is referenced to as, as writing. But rather than write on paper, he writes on the ground, on the dirt. And they look in and they press in and they say, come on, give us an answer. We want justice. We want justice. They sound just like us. We want justice. We want justice. We want what's ours. We want what's fair. We want compensation. Give us justice. And Jesus begins to ride on the ground, and then he stands up and he says, if there's anyone here without sin, let him cast the first stone. You, you know that part of the story. Tradition tells us, Ellen White in the book Desire of Ages tells us that, that Jesus began to write on the sand secrets. Secret sins. Things that were hidden in the heart of the accusers. The things that no one else would know. But Jesus, being empowered by God, revealed it on the dirt. And the Bible tells us here that as they began to press in and, and, and they stood there demanding justice, they were, they were convicted themselves because Jesus was about to deal out some justice. Imagine. They were coming to present someone else's sin and Jesus begins to unmask their sin. And as it begins to ride on the ground, the Bible tells us that the older ones begin to walk away first. Because it's hard to demand justice when you're just as guilty. Amen? Amen? But we try, don't we? Yeah. You 
We try. It's fascinating. That's the culture that we live in. We're hypersensitive when someone has done us wrong. Hypersensitive. And we conveniently ignore what we do wrong to others. But as Jesus begins to ride on the ground, the Bible tells us that the older ones begin to walk away first. It's hard to throw the first stone. Jesus says, if you are without sin, go ahead. Go ahead, cast the stone. And one by one, you know the story, they begin to walk away. And then, Jesus was the only one left. The woman was still standing there. As they walked away, this was her chance to run away, you know? This was her chance to let go of the bag and just run away. But I don't think she opened her eyes. She knew that justice meant she was caught. All that was left was the punishment, the death sentence. So Jesus startles her when he says, Woman, is there, is there anyone left to accuse you? Is there anyone else? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Is there anyone left to condemn you? She's standing there just awaiting what's coming to her. She's deserving of the punishment. And as she's waiting, Jesus wakes her up from that fear. And he says, look, look, is there anyone left to condemn you? Is there anyone left that can cast a stone? And she looks up and she says, no one. All the young men and the old men, the Pharisees and the teachers, even the spectators are gone. It's just her and Jesus. The funny thing about this is there is someone left who can condemn her, right? He's standing right there. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus is God incarnate and that he lived among us but was without sin. So Jesus can cast the first stone. He has the right and the authority to deliver justice. And he asks her, is there anyone left? And she looks around and she says, no one. But the truth is, Jesus can. He literally can. If you read the rest of, of the book of John, Jesus says, all authority in heaven has been given to me. God has given me the right and the privilege to judge. And if I pronounce a judgment, it will be right. In fact, he does pronounce judgment later in this chapter. He talks to those same verses and he says, you guys are going to die in your sin. You are guilty and you will die in your sin. So in this moment, he can pronounce the same judgment upon her. But he doesn't. Look, she says, no one's there. But Jesus, Jesus is still standing there. So he interjects and he says, neither do I condemn you. He could have. He could have. But he doesn't. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. See, we demand justice, and God is the only one who has the authority to deliver it. But he doesn't. Instead, he gives us something else, something completely different. When I first moved to this country, I was like in fifth grade. I had left that whole, uh, uh, you know, comic book stealing thing behind me and I, I moved on and you know, I was going to live a righteous upstanding life and, and I moved here to San Diego and, and they put me in San Diego Academy. One of the first things I learned to do here was to, was to put my hand over my heart and repeat these words that I didn't know what I meant. Y'all with me? Every, every, every day before you start school? Yeah, 
Um, and I didn't know how to say the first. At the very end, I learned oh, it was a liberty and justice for all, right? And as I got a little bit older and began to learn the rest of the phrase, I remember thinking how cool, how noble an expression with liberty and justice for all. And that's how we would begin our day. Liberty and justice for all. This notion in this country that we are free, that we celebrate this freedom, and that all men and all women have the right to liberty and justice for all. But the funny thing is, as I've gotten older in this country, I've become convinced and I realize that liberty and justice just don't meet together, friends. Because in order for justice to be served, somebody has to lose their liberty. You with me? That's the only time we say justice has been served when someone goes to jail. <laughs> when someone is acquitted, let off, we feel like justice hasn't been done. We have this, this, this debate, ongoing debate currently about whose liberties should rule over whose liberties. Yours or mine? Does my liberty to believe in what I believe supersede your liberty to do what you want to do? That's the debate. Does religious liberty trump over civil liberties? Who wins? See, what we fail to understand that in our pursuit of liberty, we ask justice, but justice demands the loss of liberty. Liberty and justice for all. And yet Jesus proposes something altogether different. In that moment, he looks at her and he says, neither do I condemn you. See, Jesus gives us true liberty. He sets us free from justice. Jesus delivers us from the justice we deserve. Jesus comes, and in this moment, the reason he claims this is because he's the one who pays the price for justice. And in exchange, he gives us his liberty. Friends, I don't want you to miss this. I want you to understand what Jesus is up to because it's just as necessary today as it was that day for her. You see, all of us, all of us are caught in some way, shape, or form. The secret that you think no one else knows, God knows. He's aware. Chances are someone in this room probably knows your secret too. And if justice was served, you and I would pay heavily for our crimes. But Jesus comes and offers us something completely different. He offers us mercy. 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 In the next segment there, as Jesus begins to explain what he's up to, he, he uses these words. I want to read them to you. This is from John chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. This is for you and me today. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Jesus says, everyone who's made a mistake like this woman is a slave. You, you, you are indebted. You owe a price. You are not free. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And he says, and a slave has no permanent place in the family. When you're a slave, you're indebted. You deserve nothing. But a son, a son belongs to the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. See, this is what Jesus is offering. 
rather than to give you the justice and me the justice that I deserve, he offers me mercy. And not just mercy, listen, listen, not just mercy to get out of my mistakes, he actually offers me an invitation to leave the life of slavery and become a son. A daughter. Listen to what Jesus is saying. He says, you are, you are slaves to sin, yes, but I will, I, will, I will trade places with you. I will be the slave, and I will be crushed under the weight of that sin. But you instead take my place, for the slave has no place in the family, but a son, a son belongs forever. To him and to her belongs the inheritance of the kingdom. All that God has prepared is for the sons and for the daughters. And you are not a son, but I will make you a son for if the son of God sets you free you'll be free indeed friends today today you can receive mercy for your sins and we can finally be free I don't know about you but there are some things that that I'm carrying maybe you're carrying them too afraid that the father wouldn't let these things go but see Jesus writes on the ground in the dirt it's going to be wiped away. Your sins, he doesn't, he doesn't write them permanently in ink. He writes them on the ground because he wants them to be wiped away. Jesus says, I have come to set you free. He'll say it over and over again in the book of John. I have not come to judge the world, but to save it. I have come to seek and to save what was lost. What you deserve is justice. What you deserve is punishment for your sins. But Jesus says, I will take that in your place and you can have what's mine. You were not a son, but now you are a son because I will pay to make it so. Mercy, mercy, Mercy. Friends, Jesus invites us to live free. But he also challenges us to extend freedom. Just hear me out for just a second. See, because I think some of us love hearing the sound that Jesus will forgive us. But we just hate the thought of letting someone else out from the debt of justice. We love hearing the sound that Jesus will set me free, but we want justice from those around us. But that's not what Jesus came to do. He'll say it over and over again, as I have loved you, so now you love one another. Friends, you and I can bring liberty to this church. You and I can bring true liberty to our workplaces and to our families. Let's stop demanding justice and payment. Let's extend what Jesus extends to us. Mercy. Mercy, friends. Mercy. Look around. There's people maybe even in this room that owe you big time. But Jesus says, give them mercy. Give them mercy. Because mercy transforms lives. Justice ends it. Mercy transforms life. Jesus extends mercy to this woman. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. The only way she is transformed, it is not by paying the price of justice, but is by the receiving the gift of mercy. And today you can receive that gift and give that gift. Today you can extend mercy. As the country celebrates liberty and freedom, the truth is this nation and all of us are under a heavy weight 
Everyone worried about scandals. Everyone wanted their voice to be heard and justice served on their terms. But you and I, though we are earthly citizens here, belong to a heavenly kingdom. And in the heavenly kingdom, it is not justice that prevails, but mercy. Mercy, friends. Mercy. We call it grace. Jesus says, mercy. Neither do I condemn you. Don't you want that? If you want it, so does the person sitting next to you. And your cousin or your brother or your husband and wife who isn't here today. We all need it desperately. And Jesus offers it to you and through you. Let us then accept Jesus' love and his mercy by sharing it. Let us then bring the liberty that Jesus brings, because if the Son sets us free, then we will be free indeed. When you go out from this place today, when you return to your families and return to your, to your workplaces, ask God that he would give you what you do not have, but by his power you can have. Ask God to give you the ability to say, I forgive you to extend mercy. Ask God that he would give you the courage to say, the debt you owe me, I cancel. You don't have to pay me back. The thing, the grudge that I've been holding against you is gone. It is, it is wiped away like the dirt on the ground. It is gone. You don't have to carry it. You don't owe me anymore. Maybe you can't say it out loud. Start by saying it in your heart. Look at that person and share love through your eyes. And let God transform your spirit. For God wants you to live a life free and he wants them to be free as well. For if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. We can live liberty. We don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to carry the burden of past sins. We don't have to carry the burden of past hurts and betrayals and mistakes. Mercy. Mercy. It is not justice that brings liberty. It is mercy. And I invite you to receive mercy today and to take it with you wherever you go. Let's stand and sing our clothes.